0: Can He Do That is sponsored by Bowl & Branch. Getting a great night's sleep is easier and more affordable than you think. Go to bowlandbranch.com today for $50 off your first set of sheets. Promo code Can he do that? Does anybody want welfare reform? And infrastructure. But welfare reform, I see it, and I've talked to people. I know people, they work three jobs and they live next to somebody who doesn't work at all. And the person who's not working at all and has no intention of working at all is making more money and doing better than the person that's working his and her ass off. And it's not gonna happen. Not
1: gonna happen.
2: I'm Martine Powers, and this is Can He Do That, a podcast about the powers and limitations of the American presidency. And this week, we're talking about the social safety net, federally funded programs and subsidies designed to help the poorest Americans. This is Medicaid, this is SNAP, food stamps, this is housing allowances. And since last year, the Trump administration has been taking steps to reduce the number of people who use these benefits, in particular, Trump wants to institute more work requirements to make sure that able-bodied adults who get help from the government are either going to a job or actively looking for a job. It's not a new idea, but it's an idea that President Trump is pursuing with particular intensity.
0: It's time for all Americans to get off of welfare and get back to work. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. You are going to love
2: it. And that goal, to get Americans off of welfare, Trump is pushing that idea in a few different ways. Take the events of just this past week. Ben Carson, the former neurosurgeon and presidential candidate, now he's the U.S. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, he made this big announcement on Wednesday. He wants to make significant changes to federal housing subsidies, changes that some people found kind of shocking. Encouraging housing authorities to impose work requirements. So you'd have to demonstrate that you worked a certain number of hours per week in order to get a reduced rent. And tripling the cost of rent for the poorest households from a cap of $50 a month to $150 a month. That comes just a couple weeks after Trump signed this executive action. It directs federal agencies to strengthen and ramp up the work requirements for Americans who are receiving government aid. On this week's episode, we want to talk about those requirements. How are these requirements working out in the states where they're already in practice? And why is this a focus of the Trump administration? Those are the same questions being asked
1: by business reporter Tracy Jan. My name is Tracy Jan, and I cover the intersection of race and the economy at The Washington Post. Tracy spent the last couple of weeks
2: writing about all these ways that the Trump administration has been trying to wean people off of welfare. We're talking about people who receive extra cash from the government to cover basic needs, like food, living expenses, housing, because they're not making enough money to survive.
1: The average food stamp benefit, for example, is $465 for a family of four. So you can see that's, not, that's a month, so that's not a lot of money.
2: But Tracy often encounters this long-held conception that people who are on welfare or food stamps or housing benefits are doing so because they have no incentive to seek a steady job. And even though there's not much evidence to suggest that that's true... People aren't sitting around at home on their
1: butts collecting welfare.
2: There has been this push for the last couple of decades, based around the idea that if you make benefits contingent on whether people are actually working, you can kind of catapult them out of the cycle of poverty.
1: Bill Clinton famously signed the 1996 Welfare Reform Act... And that bill required people who received cash assistance to work or look for work. Today we have an historic opportunity to make welfare what it was meant to be, a second chance, not a way of life. You know, that that was called the, it, it was similar language, it was called the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act. And that overhauled the welfare system. Over the years, the
2: requirements laid out in that bill from the Clinton era have played out in different ways for different kinds of benefits. So if you take food stamps...
1: So right now, under current rules, if you are, they call it ABOD, so able-bodied adult without dependents, so people without kids who are not disabled, they can receive food stamps for only three months unless they work at least 80 hours a month or participate in some sort of job training or volunteer program. But certain states are exempt from those rules because during the recession, there were waivers given to a lot of states and localities where there was really high unemployment. So for those parts of the country, you did not have to work in order to receive food stamps. So, for example, Alaska, California, Louisiana, Nevada, New Mexico, and parts of about 28 other states where jobs are less widely available, those folks who are needy don't have to work.
2: And yet most of them do actually have a job because they need more than food stamps to survive.
1: I think we we should keep in mind that the majority of people who do receive any sort of federal benefit do already work. The benefits are not high enough for people just to get by and chill out at home and not have a job. The problem is many of these people work multiple jobs. They just don't earn enough money. They don't earn a living wage, and so they still need help. But under the Trump administration, those statewide exemptions are
2: being reevaluated, and so are a bunch of other stipulations. So Trump announces this executive order earlier this month, and it has to do with work requirements for low-income Americans who are receiving some kind
1: of benefits. Can you explain exactly what this executive order did? Trump's executive order directs all federal agencies to examine their own work requirements and strengthen them or introduce new ones. And they're supposed to report back to the White House within 90 days with any recommendations that they'd like to make. So basically, each of these departments, like Treasury, Agriculture, Commerce, Labor, Health and Human Services,
2: Housing and Urban Development, Transportation, the Education Department... They're all supposed to take a hard look at the kinds of public assistance programs that they already offer and then figure out possible ways to scale back on what recipients would
1: receive. Many of these agencies, such as uh, the USDA, has already started looking into this and reinforcing work requirements for people who get food stamps. This
2: recent action from the Trump administration doesn't necessarily mean that all those proposals will be put into place
1: yet. Because the executive order can only do so much. Any potential rule change has to be passed through Congress. And
2: even though Speaker of the House Paul Ryan and other conservatives are big fans of these kinds of constraints on the social safety net, Congress as a whole probably wouldn't pass any of these restrictions, at least in the short term. First, because there's basically this, like, tacit agreement on both sides that nothing much of significance is going to get passed in Congress before the midterm elections. And second, because... The idea of restricting these benefits is somewhat controversial, even inside the GOP. Plenty of Republican legislators recognize that their own voters depend on food stamps, on housing subsidies, on Medicaid. So it's not like Trump is about to
1: institute all these kinds of severe restrictions unilaterally. But this definitely signals where the administration is going. And it shouldn't be a surprise. This is very basic, common Republican orthodoxy.
2: And as the Trump administration pushes for restrictions and limitations on government-funded welfare programs, they're holding up these case studies from around the country as evidence that their plan will work. Because several states have started putting new requirements into place on their own. And these provisions and stipulations are even more aggressive than what the federal government currently demands. And it turns out that we can get an amazingly detailed picture of how adding requirements for welfare recipients would affect the overall number of people on welfare. Kansas and Maine have been held up by the Trump administration as models of how to curb reliance on Medicaid and food stamps and housing benefits. And when Paul Ryan talks about the effectiveness of scaling back access to the social safety net, He's talking about what he's seen in his own home state.
0: Wisconsin's long been the model for welfare reform.
2: That's Robert Samuels. He's a national political reporter for The Post, and he just spent time in Wisconsin, visiting food pantries and church-sponsored dinners and homeless shelters to talk to real people who have been affected by welfare reform.
0: So in the mid-1990s, the governor in Wisconsin, Tommy Thompson, was the first person who came up with the idea of putting a time limit on people who receive welfare cash assistance. President Bill Clinton saw what Tommy Thompson was doing in Wisconsin and said, this is a great idea.
2: And that was a genesis of the nationwide 1996 Welfare Reform Act.
0: So Wisconsin was really the model at the very beginning, and now it's at the forefront of this large movement that you're seeing across the country to either restrict access to public assistance or to fundamentally change it. So to understand the full scope of what's happening in welfare under the administration of Scott Walker, you have to go back to 2013 when Scott Walker uh, signed a legislation that time-limited people on food stamps.
2: Scott Walker, of course, is the governor of Wisconsin.
1: Hi, Scott Walker here. Last week, I addressed you, the people of Wisconsin, and laid out a few of our top priorities. And his
2: law basically said that you couldn't receive food stamps for longer than three months unless you could prove that you were working, job hunting, or volunteering for 20 hours a week.
1: And while we're more than willing to help Wisconsinites who are down and out... We firmly believe public assistance should be a trampoline, not a hammock.
2: And then this past February,
0: the state legislature at Scott Walker's urging passed nine different welfare reform bills. The first thing it did was it took uh, the idea of that work requirement in 2013, it expanded it to include everyone who had a child over the age of six. And instead of forcing them to work at least 20 hours a week in order to continue receiving food stamps, that was raised to 30 hours a week, which is very tricky for a number of families.
2: One of the other laws mandated that people had to pass a drug test to receive a public housing voucher.
0: Another uh, requirement is called an asset limitation. So what they passed in Wisconsin was a law that said if you own a car that's valued at more than $20,000, or if you owned a house that was valued more than $300,000, you were also no longer eligible for food stamps. So the next time you applied, if you had these assets, you'd lose it. And what was the thinking behind that? The thinking behind that was there was a belief that there was a lot of fraud going on in Wisconsin and that you had people in fancy cars and living in giant mansions, those are Scott Walker's words, not mine, Uh, showing up and taking money from taxpayers by buying things with food stamps. Now, I think it's um, important to note that there's no real evidence of that. Uh, The rate of fraud for food stamps is about 1.5%.
2: Regardless, the nine new laws sent a message.
0: So even if a person did not exactly get hit by one of these very specific requirements, there was a fear that everything was going to become harder. And so I went out trying to figure out how to tell that story and the story of people who are looking at this new wall of legislation and trying to figure out how it's going to affect their ability to put food on the table. Can He Do That is sponsored by Bolin Branch. Getting a great night's sleep is easier and more affordable than you think. Go to bowlbranch.com today for $50 off your first set of sheets. That's B O L L and Branch.com. Promo code Can He Do That.
2: So, the family that you ended up focusing on, how did you find them?
0: We heard about a man named James Howlett. And he and his wife, Nadine, had been living in Milwaukee for some time, and they had fallen on hard times. Nadine recently lost her job. James couldn't work his job as a Lyft and Uber driver anymore because his car was broken. And that began a spiral into homelessness.
2: They were both looking for work. Nadine had previously worked cleaning hospitals, but she couldn't find anything that she was qualified for. And though James had previously worked as a heavy machine operator, he had this knee injury, and it prevented him from going after work in Wisconsin's growing manufacturing sector. So for James Howlett, how did his day-to-day life change after these things were passed?
0: So James's life changed in that it increased his anxiety about everything because he was looking at a car, which was broken down, not really working, and realizing that even With a broken Ford Fusion, uh, it could be valued at more than $20,000, which meant the next time he applied for food stamps, it would be
2: dubious if he and his family would be able to get them. And there was this whole domino effect that spiraled out from there. The new restrictions made it more difficult for James to get on welfare. And once he was no longer on welfare, the two of them couldn't qualify for the government loans that were helping to pay their rent so it was rough
0: and what offended them most was the idea that despite their efforts they would not be seen as different as the stereotypical welfare queen and somehow uh, they had to fight a battle to prove that they were different despite the fact that they had a work history and despite the fact that they were lobbying uh, different public agencies and sending emails and telling their story, that it didn't seem to make much of a difference.
2: And that kind of upswell of confusion and anxiety, that's what ended up happening to a lot of people in Wisconsin. And then there was this question, were the tougher requirements working? Did they really help people like James and Nadine get jobs and get off of welfare?
0: Uh, Generally speaking, we see actually, that these sorts of requirements do help people get jobs faster.
2: In several studies done by the federal government and by think tanks, you see this initial uptick in employment over the first couple of years. People who have been subject to these new requirements, they start finding jobs at faster rates. But
0: interestingly enough, those gains soon get lost, that the people who are not subject to those requirements, they catch up or the people who were subject to the requirements lose their jobs. So after five years, those gains sort of level out, and there's no real indication that you're better off long-term because you're subjected to a work requirement uh, than if you weren't.
2: And yet, the program is successful by at least one important measure. Money. Since Scott Walker put work requirements into place the Wisconsin Health Services Department has cut spending on food stamps by 28 percent, from $1.2 billion in 2013 to around $867 million in 2017.
0: There are a lot of arguments you could make for it to be effective. So for most of the conservatives in Wisconsin, though, they will argue that this is actually not a financial solution. In fact, the welfare reform bills that they put in place during the last legislative session will increase the budget. They'll need more administrators to enforce the, these work requirements. So it's not so much about what they're saving. What they're worried about is sort of the larger moral argument about the fabric of the country that there are people who have grown up with the idea that they don't need to do anything because the government will solve all their problems. I think it's also important to know that the idea of getting people to work is a popular idea, uh, both with conservatives and with liberals. It's also popular amongst the poor. If you talk to a lot of people, they'd say, yeah, I agree. People shouldn't just be sitting at home collecting a check from the government. That's not right. Uh, So the theory of it, sort of the morality issue, makes sense to a host of people no matter what their station. It becomes a lot trickier if you're a person like James and uh, you have two kids and a partner named Nadine who have just fallen on hard times. And because of the effort to get people back to work, the idea of getting government support becomes increasingly
2: difficult. And so... Did these policies help him find a job faster, encourage him to find a job faster? No. For James and Nadine, uh, they
0: ended up leaving Wisconsin, uh, which was something that I learned after the story ran. I called them on Monday, and they said, we're gone. We, Wisconsin was too hard. We decided we were going to try our luck in another state. And uh, we'll call you back when we can tell the story of our success. I haven't called back since, so.
2: So there's one way that you can look at the Wisconsin test case that it's successful, because at least in the short term, there are fewer people on welfare. And then there's this murkier picture that comes out when you talk to people like James and Nadine because it's unclear whether the people who are getting off welfare are actually getting jobs, or if they're just dropping off the map, giving up, going elsewhere. This whole story left me with a question for Tracy, because she said that the majority of people who are on food stamps are already working, and the average person on food stamps stays on for just seven to nine months, even without the new rules and regulations. if that's already happening, then, like, what's the point of
1: putting in these requirements? It saves the federal government money because uh, these programs are expensive. And the more people you kick off of the welfare rolls, the more money you save. That being said, the Republican tax bill that was passed at the end of last year will be adding more than $2 trillion to the federal deficit over a period of 10 years. And so politically, it's not just about saving money, right? It's about where our government's priorities are, who we want to spend it on.
2: So if it's not actually about spending money and it's more about political priorities, what is the Trump administration trying to do here? Like, what's the political messaging? What's the goal?
1: So these changes that the Trump administration is proposing is obviously not new. He's hinted at this in his last two budget proposals. And it also hues to traditional Republican orthodoxy embraced by Paul Ryan, as well as groups like the Heritage Foundation. It's this pull yourself up by the bootstrap ethos, the dignity of work and independence. But it's this messaging of not relying on the government and to help yourself.
2: And that's not to say that there's not a need for dramatic changes to America's welfare programs, You can point to a lot of evidence suggesting that the way things are now isn't working. Poverty rates have barely moved since welfare reform two decades ago. Many of the federal grants that are allotted to states for welfare, they aren't actually even being used to provide welfare. And there are these nonsensical rules around stuff like food stamps and Medicaid, where earning a slightly higher amount every month can end up resulting in this disproportionate loss in public benefits. And so, yeah, that does, in some cases, end up disincentivizing people from going to work. But in some ways, it seems like the main issue here isn't about what the new rules around welfare actually do, but more about how they appeal to voters. Do you think that this is going to make a difference to Trump voters, hearing about these executive actions and and the way in which the administration is trying to, like,
1: up the requirements
2: for for welfare recipients?
1: That's a really interesting question because, frankly, this hurts a lot of his voters, right? If you see um, a lot of his support in rural areas among working class or low-income whites, these changes would definitely impact them. Then why would he do it if it hurts— a lot of these voters. I think that even among some of his voters, there's the thinking that other people are getting more than they're entitled to, other people meaning black and brown people. And if only they stopped scamming this system, these voters would get what they are entitled to. The stereotypes that she's talking about, this idea that people
2: are mooching off the government. Welfare queens, people who make it their mission to
1: avoid work. The subtext here is that these are about people of color. And you definitely hear those stereotypes. When I was down in Mississippi last year, you hear people talk about those people who come in feeling entitled. For generations, they've lived on welfare.
2: The stereotypes and images associated with recipients of government benefits, they're powerful. Powerful enough that they have measurable effects on people's view of welfare as a political issue, even for people who are themselves on welfare. According to polling from the nonpartisan Public Religion Research Institute, 66% of white working-class Trump supporters think that most people who receive welfare are taking advantage of the system. And you can hear it in the way that people cheer at Trump rallies when the president talks about this unfairness of watching our neighbor living off of welfare. As a political issue,
1: this is exactly what gets a lot of Trump voters fired. But the numbers frankly show that the largest group of Americans receiving federal benefits of any kind are white. And that's because the majority of the people in this country are white.
2: And that's the biggest irony here that some of the people who stand to lose the most with potential new restrictions are Trump supporters. And yet, in many ways, this is a political message aimed at these same voters who believe so dearly that there are other people who deserve benefits less than they do. And so, when it comes to Trump's executive action and the potential for new legal restraints on the social safety net, the actual effect or outcomes of these policies seems somewhat tangential. Because you can argue that this is more about the president sending a message to his voters about how his worldview aligns with theirs.
0: There's a fundamental disagreement in this country about what it means to be poor. Are these people who aren't trying hard enough or don't know how to try? Or are there people who have gotten a bad break and have had to battle institutional issues that they can't fully handle themselves and they
2: need help? But for people like James and Nadine, or the people who work with them to try and help them get by...
0: The idea that people were on food stamps because that's a better life than working or going to a job It struck them as being fundamentally and curiously untrue. In their minds, when they go to the welfare offices or people come to them to ask for help, very rarely does it look like a person's not trying. More often, it looks like a last resort.
2: Thanks for listening to Can He Do That? from The Washington Post. If you enjoyed this episode... Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Check out previous episodes at washingtonpost.com slash podcasts, or find us anywhere else that you listen. Can He Do That is produced by Carol Alderman, with design help from Kat Riedel brooks logo art from Lauren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. I'm the host, Martine Powers, filling in for Allison Michaels. Special thanks to Tracy Jan and Robert Samuels for help with this episode.
1: do that, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Retropod, a daily show for history lovers featuring surprising stories about the past, Rediscovered. Or try Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at washingtonpost.com podcasts. The Washington, Washington, Washington,
0: Washington Post.